The KSTE Farm Hour is sponsored in part by Luna by Bear, superior efficacy on the most problematic diseases. Check out the difference at lunafungicides.com. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. The fruit and nut tree blossoms on California's farms look great right now, but how many of them are going to be killed by last week's widespread hard freeze, especially California's almond crop? Why are the state's dairy producers at a competitive disadvantage? We explain their efforts to become part of the more lucrative federal milk market order. The fast riser in commercial almond orchards is the self-fertile Independence Almond. That's a development of Zager Genetics in Modesto, and that's also the home to popular tree fruits such as the Pluot and the Aprium. We learn about the extensive, decades-long hybridization successes of Floyd Zager and his family plus the latest NAFTA developments and how California's farmers are attempting to sway Washington to adopt an ag-friendly immigration program. All that coming up on the KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. Are you familiar with the Fresno Blossom Trail? It's miles and miles of blooming fruit and nut trees. You're going to see peach and nectarine blooms, the pink ones, white flowers of plums, almonds, and apples. Even the orange groves bloom around the same time, and they smell just great. The Fresno Blossom Trail extends from south of Fresno down to about Kingsburg, and it usually attracts a lot of drive-by interest this time of year. But last week's freeze sort of put a crimp on those flowering fruit and nut trees. And not only is that rather disappointing for tourists, but farmers in the area are very worried, especially almond growers. They know their crops have suffered damage from several days of freezing temperatures, but almond farmers say the extent of losses from the cold weather likely won't be known for months. The freeze occurred throughout the Central Valley as almond trees were in bloom. Farmers say that means some of the blossoms won't create nuts, but the full impact may not be known until harvest time this summer. Observers say it may vary greatly from orchard to orchard as well. And it's not just almonds. Pistachio growers and even grape growers were worried about the timing of that freeze and the effect on future growth for 2018. In Washington State, Montana, Wyoming, and northern Idaho, they've had a fairly decent amount of snow, pretty good snowpack. Beyond that, snowpacks are abysmal across the west. Agriculture Department meteorologist Brad Rippey says the southern two-thirds of the west hurting for snowpack, which, of course, in the spring and summer supplies irrigation and drinking water for millions of people. However, there are signs, maybe, of a change in the weather pattern. We have a pretty big storm moving in. Significant snow expected as far south as the Sierra Nevada, where we have a snowpack that's only about one-fifth of average. And so it won't bring us all the way back, but certainly anything is good news at this point. The fact that we're cold, we're not melting snow, and that we're starting to accumulate a little bit more snow is an encouraging sign that it may not be just an outright disaster across the west in terms of runoff. But even so, to get snowpacks up beyond abysmally low, Rippy says... We really do need a March miracle. And March at least is starting the right way. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. A federal judge last week halted California's plan to require Monsanto to place warning labels on its Roundup products, saying scientists haven't shown a clear connection between glyphosate and cancer. U.S. District Judge William Shubb sided with the St. Louis-based chemical giant in its First Amendment lawsuit, ruling that warning labels, which would have been required as of July, could confuse and mislead customers. Monsanto and a collection of farming groups sued back in November of 2017 in response to the California Office of Environmental Health Hazards' decision that it would designate glyphosate as a carcinogen and subsequently require warning labels on retail products. 
In another court case, a judge has ordered California's agricultural officials to stop spraying pesticides on public and private property to control insects that are a threat to the state's $45 billion agricultural industry. The injunction by a Sacramento County Superior Court judge could throw a substantial hurdle in front of the efforts by the State Department of Food and Agriculture to control dozens of crop-damaging pests such as the Asian citrus psyllid, which carries bacteria that have decimated the citrus industry in both Brazil and Florida. Up, the word to describe the outlook for most of the U.S. cattle industry this year per USDA. Our forecast a 5.9% increase in total beef production of 27.7 billion pounds. That will be a record if reached in 2018. Livestock analyst Shauna Kaharan says total commercial cattle slaughter is expected to increase between 4 and 5 percent year over year, and cattle should be heavier from 2017, as feedlot operators take advantage of favorable feed costs. As for the forecast for U.S. beef exports... Beef exports are also forecast to increase our forecast for 2018 at 3 billion pounds this year. Heron says that is due to expected demand strength in U.S. beef across the globe. The only category down year over year... Price with steer prices expected down 2%. Despite relatively firm demand, we do anticipate supply side pressure to weigh on cattle prices in 2018. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. You recall the changes to the 2015 Clean Water Act. It included the Waters of the United States rules, WOTUS. And you may recall that that 2015 ruling expanded the jurisdiction of the Army Corps of Engineers and the EPA to ditches and low spots that are only occasionally wet and would expose farmers to citizen lawsuits for activities as routine as plowing a field. And you may recall that back in February 2017, President Donald Trump rescinded that change to the Clean Water Act. Well, what Trumpeth giveth, the states want to take away. Oregon, Washington, California, and seven other states are suing the Trump administration Tuesday in order to rescue the 2015 Clean Water Rule, WOTUS. The states, joined by the District of Columbia, claim that discarding the 2015 rule definition of waters of the United States will leave them vulnerable to pollution flowing across their borders. In the meantime, the Environmental Protection Agency and the Army Corps of Engineers finalize suspending the rule until at least February 6th of 2020. The delay will give the agencies time to reconsider the 2015 rule. In the meantime, a 1980s definition of the waters covered by the Clean Water Act will remain in force. The North American Free Trade Agreement. There's a lot of support for NAFTA within the administration. But Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue says the president comes from the business philosophy that you can get a better business deal by wiping out whatever the current deal is and starting over. And Sonny Perdue told reporters in California Wednesday that despite his and other farm group arguments against pulling out of NAFTA... He is uh, convinced that he could get a better deal if we withdrew from NAFTA. The president said a few weeks ago if the current NAFTA negotiations don't work out to his satisfaction... We'll terminate it. However... Purdue told reporters. We are, and many of us are, not just me, but many in the administration are uh, are working feverishly on an ongoing basis to persuade him that we're going to be able to get a good deal with NAFTA uh, while we maintain it. The next round of NAFTA talks will be here in Washington this month. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. It's a practice that goes back thousands of years on agricultural land, creating and using half-burned wood, biochar, to foster better plant growth and improve the soil. With increasing amounts of pruned wood available, plus millions of dead forest here in California, there may be a modern revival at hand. 
One of Biochar's biggest cheerleaders here in California is UC Riverside Extension Specialist Milt McGiffin. McGiffin is optimistic about the dual promise of eliminating unwanted wood materials as well as its offer of nutritional support for plants of all kinds. Yes, and for the simple reason that there's only so many ways you can dispose of organic waste. And when you start doing the math on how you're going to dispose of this waste, where you're going to put it, are you going to contribute to the greenhouse gas problem or are you going to decrease the greenhouse gas problem? Biochar starts looking pretty good. It may be a while, but it it does look good. And we are seeing people do it. We start seeing people getting the, the equipment to just do it right on their own farm. If this ever got subsidized by the government as something to use, you know, maybe subsidize it under a greenhouse gas reduction program or something like that, it would really take off. The problem with it is there just isn't a lot of money. That's that's basically where you are. And that, that's generally true of all the waste products. You don't see a lot of research and other things in, in the compost either for that simple reason. There just isn't a base of funding to do it. But when you start doing the math on logically, what are you going to do with these waste products? Biochar stands up really well. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, such as iTunes. Low milk prices have been a problem for years in all milk-producing states, but the prices are particularly low here in California. The Fresno Business Journal reports that dairy operators are currently paid 90 cents less per hundredweight than dairies on the federal order. Last year, dairy operators took significant steps to change things by voting overwhelmingly to put California on the federal milk market order. But initiating that change has been delayed by weeks or months. Despite what USDA dairy analyst Shale Shagam notes are trends pointing to slower production and output growth for dairy cows this year. 2018 production, we're talking about a record 218.7 billion pounds. That's going to be about 1.5% above a year ago. Shagam speaking at this year's USDA Ag Outlook Forum says the cow herd is expected to expand modestly, due in part to weaker milk prices. And as milk supplies are expected to increase in 2018? We do expect in 2018 to see exports increase about 2%. It will help absorb our supplies that we saw build over last year. However, when it comes to domestic consumption of milk products this year, we do expect to see consumption in domestic use increase. Fat basis will probably increase about 2% over 2017. Skims use a little bit stronger at about 2.4%. Fueled in part by increased consumer demand due to lower prices for milk, cheese, butter, and other dairy products. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Americans are showing a growing demand for organic berries, that according to an analysis by the American Farm Bureau Federation. Citing data from both government and private sources, Farm Bureau economists say sales of organic produce generally have continued to increase, but sales for strawberries and blueberries in particular have trended upward. The analysis says sales of domestically grown and imported organic berries have shown sharp increases. This is where we talk about really kind of the state of the agricultural union. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue opening up the USDA's annual Outlook Forum the other day, and he frankly said the current state of the ag union is what he called troubling. Farmers are facing pretty serious challenges these days. Commodity prices have fallen. 
while the cost of operations have increased. And that will most likely be true again for this year. But for food shoppers, the news is not too bad. We'll take a look at prospects for our food producers and consumers on this edition of Agriculture USA. I'm Gary Crawford. We are forecasting farm income to decline. For what could be the fourth year in a row, this from Agriculture Department analyst Carrie Litkowski. She says the prices for many farm commodities have also fallen over the last four years, and they are in general expected to stay low again this year, taking incomes down. Net cash farm income is forecast to be down about 5%, while net farm income, a broader measure of income, which includes non-cash items as well as cash items, is expected to decline almost 7%. Net cash income at the projected $92 billion will be the lowest in nine years. The net farm income figure the lowest in 12 years. She says there's no one reason for this, but a combination of things, including... Declines in both livestock and crop cash receipts of about a percent or less. And we're also seeing, uh, expecting to see a drop in federal government direct payments to farmers. And then a modest increase in production expenses. This long-term four-year trend in falling farm incomes has some people concerned because some of us remember what happened in the 1980s. There's no way that we can survive without some help. What we have is a real potential depression. 1979, a rally of farmers in Washington, D.C. They came here on tractors to bring attention to what was later called the farm crisis. They were hit by low crop prices, staggering increases in production costs, and high loan interest rates. Thousands of farmers were losing their farms and their homes to foreclosure. So naturally, many people wonder if that's going to happen again. At the forum, the USDA's chief economist said farmers and the farm economy are not in as bad a shape as back during the farm crisis of the 80s. But Rob Johansson said there are some, to use his and Secretary Purdue's words, there are some troubling trends. First, looking at farm debt. The current levels of debt are approaching the levels we saw back in the 1980s at more than $400 billion. And troubling trend two. Borrowers are finding it hard to maintain payments on both operating real estate loans. Trend three, the percentage of farmer debt compared to assets has been rising. It's about 13% now, nowhere near the 22% of the 80s, but still growing. And trend four has to do with interest rates. Interest rates as a share of net farm income have been increasing more steeply than has the debt-to-asset ratio, a serious trend that we are going to continue to follow. Or as Agriculture Secretary Purdue put it, That's not a path to prosperity. Now one good trend so far, farm bankruptcies still very low. In 1987, 23 out of every 10,000 farmers declared bankruptcy. Last year, the rate was only two and a half farm bankruptcies out of every 10,000 farms. Also, before 2014, farmers had several years of getting very high prices for their products, which put them in a better position to weather the bad times. But now let's go from the farm to the grocery store. Now, we food shoppers have had it uh, good over the last two years. Food prices went down in 2016, down again in 2017. The last time we had two years in a row of falling food prices was a long time ago when these songs were hits. How much is that dog in the wind? 1953. Mr. Sanders. 54. Bring me a dream. And 1955. 
But after two years of falling food prices at the grocery store, 2018 could bring an increase. Economist Anne-Marie Coons tracks retail food prices for the Agriculture Department. Back at the beginning of the year, she was projecting grocery store food prices this year to rise from 1, maybe up to 2%. However, at USDA's Outlook Forum, she lowered that forecast. In 2018, we're expecting grocery store prices to rise between half and 1.5%. Coons says one reason food prices could rise is rising energy prices. This has the potential to drive up costs for transportation, food processing, and also retail overhead. Ah, but one thing to remember, all of these forecasts that we've heard here are being made very early in the year before crops are even planted in the ground. Anything, as we know, can happen in Agriculture USA. I'm Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington. Pursuing the goal of a flexible, practical agricultural immigration program, California's farmers and their employees traveled to Washington, D.C. last week to meet with members of Congress. The California Farm Bureau Federation, which sponsored the trip, says it aims to emphasize the importance of partnerships between farmers and employees. Farm organizations have been advocating with Congress for a workable solution for people who want to enter the United States to fill agricultural jobs. The statistics alone are staggering. Nearly 64,000 Americans died from a drug overdose, and that is more than the number of people whose lives were lost either in car accidents or gun-related homicides. That's roughly 174 people a day, and an overwhelming majority of these deaths involved an opioid. That was Ann Hazlett, USDA's Assistant to the Secretary for Rural Development, speaking at the annual Agricultural Outlook Forum. Last fall, the CDC announced that the rates of drug overdose deaths had risen in rural areas to surpass the rates in urban areas. She adds that USDA sees opioids specifically as a significant challenge to rural prosperity. We are announcing the launch of a new opioids webpage, which will serve as a landing place to connect rural communities with resources to really help them tailor what they need for an effective local response. This effort adds to steps other groups are taking to respond to the problem. All the pointers we were seeing indicate that anything that we could do to help decrease the stigma was going to help us tell the story and get people involved in the conversation. That was Mace Thornton with the American Farm Bureau Federation. His organization has paired up with the National Farmers Union to raise the issue at a national level with a joint campaign called Farm Town Strong. When Farmers Union and Farm Bureau work together, it gets people's attention. Jessica Nichol says her group, Addiction Policy Forum, is adding a personal dimension. I think we'll be ready by April. We are launching our pilot to have a crisis line manned by clinicians, master's level social workers, peer recovery support specialists, caseworkers, to make sure that someone picks up the line and the phone. Meanwhile, Nancy Hale with Operation Unite works on addiction issues in eastern Kentucky. Unite has placed prescription take-back boxes at law enforcement offices in every county in the 5th Congressional District, and we have collected more than 10.6 million tons of medications. Raising awareness about opioid abuse also is an urgent issue for employers. Dan Krause is the general manager of Midwest Poultry Services, one of the nation's largest egg producers with 600 workers. He recalls when an employee told him in 2013 that he had an opioid addiction problem. So he said, okay, we'll work with you. And he was going to Narcotics Anonymous meetings in town, working with a local pastor that had helped other people that were addicted. We were probably a little more accommodating when he was late or having trouble. At one point I went to his house. He sent me a text and said he was in trouble. But Krause, who joined the other speaker, 
speakers on the Agricultural Outlook Forum panel said trying to be understanding was not enough. One weekend I got a call that he had been found in his house dead. He had overdosed and died. I wish I had known then some of what I know now. He adds that there are economic costs for employers too. An addicted employee costs that employer about $11,000 a year in lost productivity. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. The KSTE Farm Hour, brought to you in part by Mavento Insecticide from Bayer. And now let's get back to the KSTE Farm Hour. You may be very familiar with that famous plum apricot cross, the pluot, or perhaps the aprium. And more and more growers in California are very familiar with the Independence Almond. All three of those and a lot more were developed by Zager Genetics, a Modesto institution since the 1950s. Floyd Zager and his family have been developing and hybridizing fruits and nuts for over 50 years now. Tom Spellman of Dave Wilson Nursery recently got a behind-the-scenes tour of this most famous family in fruit as they create new varieties the old-fashioned way, hybridization and hard work. I'm Tom Spellman with Dave Wilson Nursery. It's a late February morning and we're here at Zager Genetics in Modesto, California. We're going to talk to some of the folks here about how they hand pollinate and create hybrids of, of new fruit tree varieties. I'm out here in the field at Zager's this morning with Juana and Elena and what they're doing is a pollinization project. So they have four different types of pollen that they're hand pollinating this plum variety with to determine what is the best pollinator to be used for commercial production or for, for backyard growing of this variety. So this, this will allow them to determine which variety works best. So the one that sets the most fruit from the hand pollinization project will become the recommended pollinator for this variety in the future. This, uh, this process is done in isolation in this um, tent structure so that no other uh, bee activity would contribute pollen that could uh, change the percentage that they would see on any one of these varieties. So we want to make sure that this is done in isolation so nothing else contributes uh, pollen to the, to the maternal tree. I'm here this morning with Tracy Betancourt. She is Floyd Zager's granddaughter and Tracy is picking flowers to be used for the male pollen that they're going to use to cross-pollinate maternal trees in the greenhouse today. So Tracy, at what, at what stage you're looking for this, what we call popcorn stage, where yes. the blooms are they just are. starting to show some color, but they're not really open yet. Correct, and that reason is because you hope that the, um, the anther is mature enough, because if you get it too early, like this, for example, with hardly any pink, the anther is probably not mature enough, so it's, it won't be any good. And when they're completely open, it's already it's already spent yes yeah so this is something that you really have to do every day that you're that you're hand pollinating you have to collect fresh pollen every morning yes, in order to do that yes it's a very short window you know fruit you can let slide a little bit and you can kind of guess but flowers they're either there or they're not absolutely all or nothing possible. well it's just amazing to think that you have to come out here every single day and just hand pick flowers in order to in order to do this it's such a long lengthy process that you have to go through to create these hybrids but when we start tasting fruit in the summer, we figure out it's it's really worth it. Yeah. So you basically just snip that flower bud in half and uh, and collect the the section that holds the pollen. This is not 
a genetic modification. This is this is a, an old-fashioned hand-pollinated hybrid. The way the way that it would actually happen in in nature had those two trees had the opportunity to overlap. So I'm here this morning uh, uh, in one of the Zager greenhouses with Leith Gardner. Leith is uh, Floyd's daughter. Mm -hmm. And how long have you been involved in the business, Leith? Well, as soon as I was born. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. You, probably we, well, when you were writing a... nurseries, we had uh, containers. And as soon as we were able to help out in the field, we did whatever was necessary. So, so we were physically capable of doing. This is a, a lifetime venture for yes. you. You've been doing it all your life, which a lot of us in the nursery business mm -hmm. have been doing similar. But, you know, we're, we're looking at hybridization this morning. We're looking at uh, how the varieties are hand pollinated using the pollen we harvested earlier today and pollinating these, these trees in an isolated condition. This is a really nice example of a genetic dwarf it's either a peach or a nectarine or a hybrid of the two, peach. So uh, they've done a lot of work for the home garden market over the last few years with hybridizing some wonderful new genetic dwarf varieties. And, and when I say genetic, I really mean hybrid. These are not genetically modified. They're just hybrids of, of peach and nectarine. And this is a variety that will grow on its own and attain no more than a height of about six feet maximum over a 15 or 20 or even 30 year period of time. So these are strictly being hybridized for the home garden market and not as a Correct. commercial product. So well, eventually the, a lot of the commercial growers would like to get the size of the tree down, but I don't think the genetic dwarfs are going to do it because there's too much leaf coverage. Yeah. You don't get the color that is necessary for a commercial product, but we are looking for definitely smaller genetic dwarfs for the home garden with better flavor and something that's a little more unique than the old ones that are out there now. Right, right. And, and you know, there have been varieties around for many, many years and most of them of marginal fruit quality. So Correct. it's really nice to see that you're able to improve some of the fruit qualities on these. We have, we have four varieties now um, in an evaluation program. In fact, one of them we released this year, which was the new um, uh, Nectacot. Mm -hmm. It was a white-fleshed uh, nectarine that actually has some apricot parentage. And Correct. That seems to be a great variety. And, and we have three others that uh, we'll be trialing in, in several different locations this mm -hmm. year. So uh, I'm really excited about all the new you know, genetic dwarf combinations that you're working with. And would, would you say that this is something that maybe you'll, you'll come up with uh, uh, a strain that may be um, a little wider-headed or a little more open-centered that may actually, you know, w eventually work into commercial Well, we are uh, definitely adaptation. looking for something like that. Um, whether this specific one would do it, I don't think so, because all the branches are going straight up the middle, but uh, right. we are looking for those that have lost some of that vertical growth habit yeah. and um, has a little bit more so it will branch out sideways without a lot of pruning. Right, so a little more wide-headed, you know, you're actually kind of breeding a little bit of the of the dwarf character back out of them, you Correct. know, so that you can get a little bit more size. And Correct. And with the fruit being so close together on these, it definitely takes a lot of thinning to get a good piece of quality piece of fruit. Right. They produce in clusters, sometimes Correct. four, five, six in a cluster. And Correct. you want to thin all those clusters down to one. I mean, look at the, each one of these branches. It's just, well, it's just they're, they're, every flower every buds all the way up the branch at every, at, at every node. More, yes. Yeah. It usually produces also flower buds. So when you have the brachytic dwarfs or this type of thing, you just get 
fruit masses of fruit on exactly. it. Exactly. So I mean this this branch right here, 18 inch long branch, probably has 40 flowers on it. If, I mean if half of those actually set a fruit, you could have 20 fruit on that one little branch. And Correct. And they will be all little. If you want fruit size, you, you would want two fruit on that branch. So, maybe, yes. Yeah, or maybe one. Yeah. So, you know, thinning. The size and the quality and the flavor, it, um, you need to definitely reduce the competition from the other fruit and let them grow. Absolutely. You know, and thinning is something we always emphasize. And, and you know, this is a great example to show how important that would be. Mm-hmm. Well, 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 let's look at hybridization. So, Tracy, we've been yes. uh, we've been out in the orchard. We were collecting pollen. We um, uh, worked, worked with your grandfather to separate the pollen from the flowers. So, kind of explain to us what's uh, what's going on here at this point. These are our, the barrels. These are what we call our mother stock. And what she's doing right now, she's emasculating. So she's taking everything off except for the pistol. So she's ripping off the petals and everything. But as you can see, the little pistols everywhere is what she's leaving because that's what will then hand pollinate. So you're just, just leaving the exposed pistol yeah, and that's just it. Just leaving the exposed pistol and then so this one you can see has been pollinated from the 16th to the 22nd. So this this tree's already been worked yes. five times. Yes. And we're doing it doing it here again now. Yeah. And so what's in the barrel is this number and it's a peach and it was crossed with this. So then then taken you can see in here is the smash pollen. Mm-hmm and they have the little brush and then they go through and they hand. So just like a little, almost like a little makeup yep. brush. The yeah, eyeshadow brush. Right. So this, this, is your, this is your maternal parent. Yes. And then this is, this is the, the, the male pollen that's, that's <laughs> yes. being So that's the male in. pollen that's putting onto the female. And, and you've, you know, you've calculated strategically what these two varieties are Yes. And you're you're doing these crosses for a specific reason. So you're looking for an end result. Yes, you're looking for, for an or, early bloom yes. or a large size fruit or flavor a, or a flavor or a color character. Yes. So all of these crosses are are calculated, and and then they're covered up with a with a Tyvek or a no, a, just the plums are covered up. Oh, so every tree is not covered. The self sterile. No, the every self, tree is just not self sterile. Just okay, self -sterile. okay. But at, at this point, once the pollen is added to these varieties, there's no chance that they're going to pollinate with anything else. Flower's basically gone, and you know you're, you've calculated yeah, exactly what goes into the crop. Yes, yes, it's a very controlled environment. Floyd's Agar has been an institution in the development of hybrid fruits and nuts since the 1950s. Floyd is still alive and in his 90s, he's turned over most of the work to the rest of his family, children, grandchildren. We pick up the conversation that Tom Spellman of Dave Wilson Nursery is having with the Zager family about how they develop and hybridize all their award-winning fruit and nut varieties, including the Independence Almond. Leith Gardner is Floyd Zager's daughter, and she tells Tom Spellman a little bit about the history and more about the hybridization work that goes on at Zager Genetics. Well, I just, I absolutely love this old-fashioned philosophy on hybridization. It's just, uh, you know, a wonderful way to create some fantastic new varieties. And you guys, your dad started this, was it 60 years ago? About 60 years ago, yeah. So, you know, you have 60 years worth of, of germplasm that you're working with. And, you know, it just seems to me, I, I've been I've been coming to Zager walkthroughs on and off for over 20 years now, and it just seems to me that every year things get 
a little better and a little better, and there's just well, always new and yeah. improved varieties. That's yeah. what we're striving for on, on a lot of these varieties. As you say, we've evaluated them. We look for varieties that, say, have everything, every good quality you can think of, but maybe not enough color or not enough bricks. So then we go through on the varieties we've been evaluating and look for those that, depending on the maturity time we want to try and reach, um, pick those that have better color or better sugar and combine the two together. So Absolutely. Doing the better size with the better color. So the end result of, of what we're doing here today is going to be what you would call an F1 hybrid. Yes. It's a simple, you know, male pollen to a female flower. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you're going to grow on that, that fruit and evaluate that fruit for its character. So. Well, the what? only thing that's going to change is the embryo. Right. The fruit on this tree is no, exactly. the same as the Exactly. You're, you're, yeah. you're going to get a change in, in the seedling that comes Correct. from that fruit. Yes. So how many um, stages of hybridization have some of these varieties gone through over the years? Are you at F6, F8, F10s? You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you know some of these things have been evaluated a dozen different times and you're going, yeah, that's almost what we want, but we don't really have quite the color that we want. We don't really have quite the size that we want. We'd rather have this a, a freestone instead of a clingstone or, huh. or whatever. So you go back in and you hybridize again. Or you hybridize one of the seedlings from that mother. Right, right. Just to try and change that, that characteristic you, again. you look at the pedigrees when we're going through, sometimes you'll see that... Um, you've been selecting open pollinated seedlings maybe six times from the one cross we're making here. Right. Because every year the seedling is improved and so you make it a selection and then you turn around and you pre-cross that with what the new trends are, or the new chilling requirements are or things like that that need to be improved upon because with all the climate changing and everything that it's necessary to find varieties that are very adaptable. Sure, sure. So you're looking for early bloomers for low chill, late mm -hmm. bloomers for high Correct. chill, late season fruit varieties trying to extend out the cherry Correct. season or the plum season. So genectarines, everything. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I, I, I have to tell you, you know, I, I mean, I just, I, every time I make a trip and come and visit Zagers, whether it's a fruit walkthrough or for something like this, I mean, as a somebody that's been in the horticultural industry for 40 years this is this to me is like a trip to disneyland <laughs> it's it's a lot of painstaking hand labor but um some of the results have been very good very good for the industry very good for the consumer absolutely um, your your results speak for themselves so that was really a great visit that we had with zager genetics Every time I go over there, I learn something new, and I'm just fascinated with the amount of effort that they put into hybridizing new varieties. And we've, at Dave Wilson Nursery, have been working with Zagers for almost the entire run of the nursery, for at least 50 years. Zagers has come up with some wonderful varieties over the years. The one uh, that I'm standing next to right here is one of their first interspecific introductions. It's Dapple Dandy Pluot. It was the first one on the market. It's the one that they called dinosaur egg early on and it's still one of my favorite pieces of fruit to eat in midsummer. So they've been hybridizing and rehybridizing and rehybridizing again for decades now and I hope it sheds a little bit of light on the amount of effort that it takes to to produce some of these interspecific varieties. It's not just throw a seed in the ground and, and sell a tree. It's, it's all about time. It takes literally 15 years 
to put a variety from the, the pollinization process into its final evaluation stages and actually get it on the market. So a lot of effort, a lot of people rely on what happens at, at Zagers to make their living. Floyd Zager is, is a genius. Floyd, what Floyd Zager has been able to do over the years and now with his family carrying on behind him, we need, we need to respect that and we need to just be thankful for what he's produced and what he is allowing us all to enjoy. So the next time you eat a pluot or an aprium or a nectaplum or a, a pluaria, cherry plum hybrid, just think of Floyd and think of all the effort that's gone into producing these hybrids over the years. That was Tom Spellman of Dave Wilson Nursery. If you want to see this hybridization process in action, visit the YouTube page for Dave Wilson Nursery and then click on the video about Zager Genetics. The existing farm bill is set to expire on September 30th of this year, barring an extension or passage of what would become the 2018 farm bill by Congress. So what is the likelihood of lawmakers passing a new farm bill by the end of the fiscal year this September? let alone by the end of 2018. A recent Farm Foundation forum on the economics of a new farm bill gave Texas A&M ag economist Joe Outlaw opportunity to offer a prediction. I actually think this bill is going to get done this year. Maybe not quite on time, but I think it's going to get done. Outlaw's outlook stems from projected monies available to write a new farm bill, which through the recent two-year budget agreement reached by Congress includes a boost in farm bill baseline spending overall, particularly for cotton and dairy programs. Still, there's not so much money that they're dreaming up new, completely different plans. It's tweaking what we have, trying to add to what we have as best they can. So I actually think we're going to move this year. Now outlaw and other economists say the baseline spending for cotton and dairy becomes important in that cotton and dairy were seen as must-haves and they got handled outside the bill. That's going to free up a considerable amount of money to do the rest of the farm bill as we move forward. Also, market and price perspective will play a significant role in crafting the new farm bill. University of Missouri ag economist Patrick Westhoff notes the 2014 farm bill and its farm safety net programs were written at a time of near record to record commodity prices. So now what might the perspective be on the agricultural risk coverage and price loss coverage programs within the context of a new farm bill for corn growers and current low prices? Suppose a new farm bill carries for recurrent provisions and suppose farmers have a new opportunity to make a choice of ARC versus PLC in 2019 and suppose for the 70 percent of farmers chose PLC. That's what we assumed last year's baseline. If the price is 370 or 380 or above, there is no PLC payment. As a point of reference, USDA's February season-ending average price forecast for corn came in at $3.30 a bushel at the midpoint. For every dime that's below 370, spending on PLC on an annual basis increases by $770 million. You know, a $3 corn price would correspond with $5.4 billion of expense just for corn for just one year. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Ruben Navarretta is a syndicated columnist, works for the Washington Post Syndicate, a native of Central California, and he points out the bias of East Coast media and the impressions that are wrong that they have of farming. He says it's up to the farmers of California to tell the nation what they're doing and how they're doing it. One area where the media goes wrong is it's too urbanized. It takes cues from uh, Washington and New York. Uh, many more journalists live in the city than cover rural areas. Uh, and, and that's been a problem. They don't understand the water issue. They don't understand the immigration issue. They don't understand uh, the land development issue. Uh, they have a mistaken idea that somehow farmers are 
in battling with environmentalists when farmers are the ultimate and first environmentalists. You know, you have to understand these things going forward. And I'm always struck by the fact that there are some really smart people in New York and Washington who are on matters of farming just profoundly dumb uh, about that issue. I really feel strongly that farmers need to do a much better job of telling their own story, you know, through radio shows and podcasts like this one and, and, and through columns and the like, and just telling your own story. Because if you do not define yourself, the way it works in politics and media is your adversaries will define you for you. Farmers are being defined very unfairly by both local parties, and it's time that they had their own voice. Many local farm groups are coming to that realization and have active YouTube sites where their farmers are telling their own stories. Such sites include Placer Grown as well as the Rice Growers Association. Aging lovers of leafy greens may benefit from brains that behave as much as 11 years younger, that according to a study recently published in the journal Neurology. Researchers found consumption of at least one serving daily of green leafy vegetables, such as kale, spinach, and lettuce, were associated with slower cognitive decline in participants who were aged 58 to 99. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at kste.com.